Welcome to the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Reminger Co. LPA is a full-service law firm with over 150 lawyers spread across 14 offices and serving states throughout the Midwest. My name is Zach Pyers, and I'm a partner in Reminger's Columbus, Ohio office. And I'm Kenton Steele, an associate in Reminger's Columbus office. This podcast on emerging technologies will examine how changes in technology and business models affect our daily lives and how the law is adapting to respond to these changes. On today's episode of the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies, we are very grateful to be joined by a special guest, Sarah Peters. Sarah is a shareholder at Walkup Melodia Kelly and Schoenberger in San Francisco, California. Sarah prosecutes and serves as lead trial attorney for severely injured individuals in cases involving defective products, transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft, aviation crashes, medical negligence, vehicular negligence, sexual assault, nursing home abuse, and other forms of wrongdoing. When Sarah isn't representing clients, she's a lecturer at Stanford Law School, co-directing the trial advocacies. And additionally, Sarah is also uh, published in a peer-reviewed journal uh, related to tort law. Let's please welcome uh, Sarah to the program. So, (coughs) Sarah, can you please... um, Introduce yourself to us. Tell us a little bit about your background and how long you've been litigating the types of cases that I mentioned involving uh, transportation network companies or ride-sharing companies. Sure. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. So I'm a, a partner at Walk Up Melodia Kelly and Schoenberger, as you mentioned, and we handle ride-share cases, both the run-of-the-mill type, which is an accident, a vehicle accident, and also cases that involve sexual assault. Um, I've worked on both of those types of cases. The ones involving assaults, um, I've been working on for about six years now. The other types go back a little bit further than that, um, but those are not all that distinct necessarily from the other cases we traditionally handle. And just a little bit about our practice. I'm not the only attorney in the office who works on those case types, and I actually consider it one of the best things about my job is working with other people who are really smart who sharpen me, and we work in this team collaborative environment. So fortunately, I'm not the only one um, working on on these cases. And and that's, I think, part of the benefit that we get to bring uh, to the process and to refining our skills as lawyers. Very, uh, very interesting. So looking at, um, you know, this is the podcast on emerging technologies, and we do talk a lot about different types of ride sharing cases. So is there anything... um, that you have found to be unique or similar um, in the types of cases that you handle involving ride-sharing that maybe differentiates them from just your traditional car crash case? Or, uh, you know, is it relatively just similar and and not that different than any other case where someone's driving on behalf of a, a company? It's usually very different. So there are cases where there's enough insurance money available. And if it's simply a matter of saying, does insurance cover this car crash? That's kind of a simple and traditional question. But if it's not a simple question about insurance, then we get into all of these questions that your podcast has been artfully dealing with, which are, how does the law accommodate this completely new business type, right? That's trying to find some sliver of light between the old traditional you know, employment relationship and some sort of independent contractor relationship. But, you know, were these drivers all driving around before running their own businesses? No, 
this is a new thing. It's very new. And, and the law doesn't really know what to do with it. I think that's what gives you so much meat to talk about here. Um, and we certainly wrestle with that in our cases, you know, and oftentimes adapting to new laws, you know, Prop 22, new cases, uh, the Dynamics case, you know, whatever it may be, we're, we're constantly as lawyers trying to adapt and figure out um, where do we go from here? Because, you know, sometimes our sense of justice and traditional application of tort law principles conflicts with what we see uh, happening maybe in the regulatory arena. And we have to figure out where to go with that. It's, that is, um, as you mentioned, something that we cover a lot here. It is um, uh, sort of just this interesting note that in the, our world, in the legal world, so many times we're in the position of playing catch up with technology. And, and regulators are usually even one step ahead of the tort litigators in terms of figuring out how to wrestle with those questions. Um, and, and so it sounds like in your position, you're really at the forefront of making that first step to make sure that the law is staying current with changes in the way uh, business relationships are operating because of the changes, um, the technology that's. A- so that is um, we're a great person to have on the podcast. So um, t- kind of following up on another thing you mentioned, which was your work on cases involving sexual assault and, and a crossover between those types of cases transportation companies. Can you tell us a little bit about what your experience has been with that type of case? Yeah. So first of all, something about me as a lawyer, I tend to be drawn to complicated cases. I don't know why, you know, other people manage to get the cases where, you you know, you just go through a, you know, color by numbers type approach. You already have the playbook. I've had a lot of case types that I've handled, whether it's nursing home, um, abuse or whether it's sexual assault cases in a rideshare context that are really challenging. And I enjoy that. It's fun for me to work on that type of case. So I've had um, sexual assault cases where it's a driver who works for Uber, um, who is sexually assaulting a rider. I've had cases where it was a driver um, punching and knocking out a rider. Uh, so it's not sexual in nature. I've had cases where it's somebody who used to work for Uber who still has the decals and the stickers and all the stuff that makes them look like they work for Uber, who's posing as a rideshare driver. And I've um, also had some experience with the cases where somebody is, uh, they are not working for Uber at all. They've never worked for Uber, but they are simply posing as a rideshare driver and pretending to be an Uber driver. You know, and then within that, we have cases where it's really clear that uh, I've worked on cases where it's really clear that this was uh, a rape. It goes to a criminal prosecution. But I've also worked on cases where there's a much trickier he said, she said dynamic and there are credibility issues you're out as well. And so looking at those cases, um, we've obviously covered some of those on the on the show before the kind of different types of claims that can arise um, in that ride-sharing context. And with the type of conduct you're talking about, those types of wrongful conduct, that's usually something that's very difficult or impossible to impute to an employer through concepts of vicarious liability. Um, so can you explain a little to us about you know, what the approach is for liability um, when you're not able to rely on that type of respondeat superior or concepts of vicarious liability to uh, reach the, the, the actual company that may be involved. Absolutely. So 
to put it in context, we are, of course, talking about duty. <laughs> duty. Is Uber responsible? Do they have a duty that covers the type of incident that occurred? And, you know, in one situation that, that you've already covered on your podcast, that question is driven by what is the control? What is the relationship between the driver and Uber? But that's often not the situation in my case. So in my cases, if you have somebody who's serving only their own interests in, in committing a sexual assault, that's not something Uber tells them to do. That's not in the playbook. That's not serving Uber's interests. So we kind of get outside of these traditional respondeat superior notions. And where lawyers need to be thinking in those situations is what's the relationship between Uber and the rider, not the driver. Um, now, Uber can have different types of duties depending on the relationship to the rider. And there's really three different analyses, three different frameworks within that relationship between the duty and the rider. One is just simply the fact that Uber is making certain promises. It's undertaking to do certain things for the benefit of the rider. And so like anybody in any context that undertakes to do anything for another person, there are duties and responsibilities to do it with reasonable care, not to do it negligently. Okay. So that's the first part. Was Uber negligent with respect to the rider and what the rider could reasonably expect from Uber? Number two is like I think you've mentioned in a former podcast, was Uber um, a common carrier? Was it transporting people in a way that the law will say makes it a common carrier as a transportation company? And does that give rise to a heightened view toward the passenger? Really similar to the first question. It's not really a different analysis. It's just one that says they don't simply have the duty to act with reasonable care toward the passenger if they're a common carrier they actually have a duty to act with the utmost care. And it's a non-delegable duty, meaning if somebody is working for them, they don't get to say, no, that's outside, you know, that we didn't tell them to do that. You know, that wasn't really part of what we're responsible for. Traditionally, they, they need to own it all so long as it occurred in the course of their transportation of a rider from point A to point B. And then the third prong, which I don't think as lawyers, we, we always think of as arising from the relationship between the driver and the passenger, but it really does, is this, this notion of ostensible agency or apparent agency or agency by estoppel. Usually when you hear the words agency or employment, you're thinking about a real relationship that exists between, say, Uber and the driver. But with ostensible agency or apparent agency, you're not talking about a real relationship that exists in terms of control or any of those factors necessarily. Instead, you're talking about an apparent relationship. We're asking about how did things look to the writer and who made them look that way? So the question the courts will usually ask if you bring an ostensible agency claim is, did Uber make it look to the writer? like the driver was working for Uber? And did the rider rely on that? Was that the reason the rider got into that car and trusted that driver? And did that lead to harm to the rider? So again, that third type of theory, the ostensible agency or apparent agency theory, hinges on these questions about the relationship or the communications between Uber and the rider, as opposed to the driver. It really excludes the driver from the equation. And I think we need to, as lawyers, really be thinking about and considering that aspect of the relationship because the relationship between the driver and Uber is so much in flux um, and is a product of regulatory changes, changes in the courts, 
and then on the ground and practical changes. But in the background, the whole time, there's a constant relationship between Uber and its riders. Absolutely. And and you're so, so correct in that is something that obviously we've talked about on this show a lot is the relationship between the driver and the company. And it, it is very difficult because it shifts from moment to moment. Have they clicked accept ride? Have they made it to the destination where they're picking up the passenger? Um, it, you know, is there another app that's running in the background? Um, th- so there are multiple periods with one driver with multiple ride sharing companies and it makes it very, very tricky to parse out how liability should be spread in the event of an accident. But this, um, other approach I think is really critical the relationship between the passenger and the company. And one of the um, things that I found very interesting, and this was quite a while ago, but came out of California, was in the very early days of the ride-sharing companies, Uber was consistently holding itself out and saying, we're the safest ride on the road, and had been charging passengers a safety fee, which I my understanding is they no longer do that and no longer make those similar claims. But are that is that type of representation still something that is a, a big part of when you're looking at that relationship between the passenger and the company? Absolutely. Um, because in 2009, a woman would not leave a restaurant at midnight and get into an unmarked car from a non-professional driver who says, hey, if you give me 10 bucks, I'll get you home safely. They're not going to do that. You know, that's hitchhiking. That's not safe. That's not smart. And Uber changed that. You know, they brought in this new business model that said, we're going to bring in a fleet of drivers, which is everybody. Anybody can be an Uber driver and anybody can be an Uber rider. And we're going to match all of you up. But why did that work? It doesn't work if Uber says, we all want you, want you all to know we've got nothing to do with these drivers. We're holding them out at arm's length. We don't really screen them. We don't really know who they are. They're just random people, but we'd like to get some money if you get in their car and get a ride with them. That business doesn't work. The business only works if Uber actually gets the public to trust the business model, to believe that Uber is doing something to make it safe. These are professional cars. They're nice, sleek black cars. They're, they have standards. People are screened before they can be an Uber driver. They have a star rating system. There are tools to match you with your driver. This system works. It's safe. You can trust it. You can get in this car. That's the only way it works. That's why they're a successful business today. So um, we don't look back at those representations that say safest ride on the road and go, oh, you know, if they stop saying that, you know, in 2016, then it has nothing to do with things now. It's the whole reason that there's a market. It's the whole reason that they have riders is because people do believe that it's safe and they can trust it. And following up on that, that, um, issue of passenger safety as it relates to the the bigger picture of the way ride-sharing companies operate. Is there something that that you see as the industry's role with respect to passenger safety um, that the ride-sharing companies are not doing or, or what it is that is that duty um, that is at issue and what it is that's required to discharge that duty from the ride-sharing company? Yeah, I think there's so much that we could talk about under that umbrella question. But at a basic level, they have a responsibility to engage in a process of analyzing the risks, of thinking to themselves, what are the risks that our business model is creating or potentially creating 
how can we eliminate these risks or guard against these risks or warn against these risks in ways that will be meaningful and effective and keep our business safe? And that's not a new concept. So actually, in the I handle product liability cases as well as this type of case. And in the product liability context, engineers are always looking at those types of questions. If they're bringing out a new medical device or there's a new consumer product, there's always this set process that the engineers go through where they first try to identify risks, then they design them out, guard against them or warn against them. And then they go back to the process and they analyze, did it work? Why, why would it work? Are there other risks less left over? And they go back around and around the circle, reanalyzing and then re-eliminating the risks. But Uber, and I shouldn't pick on Uber. I mean, this is, you know, Lyft, any ride-sharing company in general fell into this in-between spot between being a tech company and being a not-tech company because they're actually creating a different transportation industry, but they're also doing it in a tech space. And they looked at themselves, when I look back at that history, I think they looked at themselves as a tech company. And they thought to themselves, we're just doing this humble role of connecting drivers and riders. We don't really have to think about risks. We just have to think about how to do the programming and how to make the app work and how to make it user friendly. And so I don't think they really sat around in their boardroom or around their coffee tables, whatever it was in those early days, and thought, what are we introducing to the world in terms of safety or risk? And how do we plan for that? And then as time went on, I think they continued not to have those types of conversations and risk analyses. So what I'd like to see, and I think there, I think increasingly this is becoming part of the discussion and, and that's encouraging to see, right? I want to give props where props is due. I think that there are folks working in the rideshare space now who are really having serious conversations, but it needs to be uh, systematized. It needs to be comprehensive. And it needs to be formal and they need to have companies consult or they need to internally think what are all of the risks? What are all the risks that we may be creating or that we could stop and we could prevent that are fall within our business model? And to kind of wrapping things up, and this is a question we when we have someone who's an expert and has a lot of familiarity with a given subject because of the nature of the show, this is always kind of where things um, end up is – do you have anything in mind that you see as on the horizon for the ride sharing company or changes that we can expect or, or, you know, sort of concrete things that you would like to see or do believe we will see with respect to the way ride sharing companies operate um, in, in kind of that short term or long term future? First, I'm going to dodge your question a tiny bit and say there's a specific risk that I'd like to see them really work on. I think it's, um, there are some specific changes I'd like to see, but I think there's the danger when a lawyer who really doesn't work in the risk analysis and engineering and programming space says, here's the solution, right? I really like them to go through the process themselves to come up with the solution <laughs> and to do it in a way that works. And I would be scared myself to say, I have the experts to provide that solution. But first, let me say that a risk that they really need to grapple with is this. It's the reality, which I think everybody's, you know, they've all known from the beginning that there are people who will pose as rideshare drivers for the purpose of being predators and harming riders. This isn't something that the rideshare companies have ever really considered to be their problem. And that's the problem. So they've not, I don't think, ever sat down and gone, how are we going to protect riders 
against the problem of people intentionally trying to use our system for harm. Instead, they've said, that's not us. That's not our driver. That has nothing to do with us. We're a phone book. We're an app. That person over there wasn't using the app. They weren't our driver. They weren't in the course and scope of employment. Why would we even pay attention to that? They have to pay attention to that. It's a critical matter of public safety that they pay a lot of attention to it. And there are ways that through communications and through redesigning the app, they can make things safer. So one example of a type of communication that I think we need to see more of, or seeing some of it, we need to see it more clearly stated, is for companies like Uber and Lyft to say to their riders, you can't trust the decal. You can't trust the sticker. If a car has that decal on it, they could have printed it off on their home printer. They could have gotten it anywhere. Um, We cannot vouch for them. They are not necessarily working for us. They may not be safe. In fact, they may be a predator. And there are people who try to use those decals for predatory purposes. It's rare, but it happens with some regularity. And so, you know, these tools that we give you in the app to check the license plate, to check, you know, there's new technologies like the beacon that has a light that flashes. These these things are not just there so you get in the right Uber, not the wrong Uber. They're not just for convenience. They're for critical safety purposes. And that's a little scary as a business for them to say those things because they're trying so hard to make this whole thing seem safe. Now, it doesn't sound very safe, but they've got to acknowledge the dangers and acknowledge them wholeheartedly in order to make it. So I think that's one thing I'd really like to see. And the other is they've got to be careful, I think, not to let people use the app to call for a ride for somebody else who's at a different place. You know, they can see through GPS technology when that's happening. Or if they allow it, they've got to make it really uh, easy and intentional that that information about the license plate, what does the driver's face look like, et cetera, has to be sent to the person who will actually be taking the ride. You know, so the current advertising that like if grandma doesn't have a smartphone, call a ride for her. You know, if your friend's drunk or, you know, she doesn't can't get home, you can call a ride for her. No, like this has to be done very intentionally if it's done at all, because Um, without those tools that are within the app, the only thing a rider has is the decal. And we know the decal doesn't protect against uh, those people who are seeking to use the system for harm. And that, that answer raises so, so many interesting points. And, um, you know, a, a thing, a tension that we see over and over and over again with, when new technologies are introduced and new business models are introduced are, if companies allow these problems to fester and linger and don't address them themselves, ultimately they're addressed by governments. And you've already seen that, right, with the with the types of passenger safety laws that have been proposed at the state level. Some have been passed. And at the federal level, there's discussions of, you know, specific passenger safety laws that were really um, – driven by some very tragic cases um, out of South Carolina, I believe, where the types of protections that you're talking about, if they're not put in place uh, by the company's own choosing, they will be foisted upon the company, you know, without their say in how that works. And so I, I do think that's exactly right as something that is likely going to be addressed one way or another at some point in the future. And the the problems that come out of calling rides for someone else is another thing that is, I, I think it's almost lucky. I have not seen too many of the cases, but we, we know just from the numbers that there are problems with people calling rides 
for minors. And, you know, the companies say, well, we won't let a minor ride in the car. Um, it's against our policies. But they just do it anyway. If, you know, if, if a driver shows up and it's a 15 year old, how often are they really going to say, no, you can't get in the vehicle? Um, so it is, those are two very, very, um, kind of burning questions that it will be interesting to see how those are addressed in the, in the next few years. That concludes our time for uh, today's episode. I want to thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure this is going to be very informative for our listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.